Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 8, Leviticus, chapter 5. We're going to start tonight in uh, Leviticus, chapter 5. And we ought to see chapter 5 as really just but a continuation of chapter 4. Um, in fact, the specific sacrificial ritual that we studied in chapter 4 extends right on into the thirteen verse, first 13 verses of chapter 5, but then it changes to something else. And put another way, the uses for the Hata'at sacrifice, which is what we're calling the purification offering, are ordained beginning in Leviticus 4, which we studied last week, uh, verse 1, all the way through Leviticus 5, verse 13. Once we get to verse 14 and 15, things change to a different but complementary kind of sacrificial offering. Now, just as most Bible translators have called the sacrificial offering of Leviticus 4 the sin offering, we're not going to call it that, they also tend to call the various offerings mentioned in Leviticus 5 as sin offerings, although some translators then substitute the words guilt offerings. Keep in mind that in Torah class, we are going to call the sacrificial offering of Leviticus 4, the purification offering, again, which translates from the Hebrew word hatat. Now, in reality... This new type of offering that's presented to us about halfway through Leviticus chapter 5 is something we haven't seen before. Okay? And this new type of offering that begins in verse 14 of chapter 5, we are going to call the reparation offering. And the Hebrew word that I am translating as a reparation offering is asham. A-S-H-A-M, asham. I think as we do our study today in Leviticus 5, it's going to become apparent why I have chosen to use that word, reparation offering, and even more importantly, the different issues that the Hata'at and the Asham sacrifices deal with. So open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5, and we're going to read it all the way through. Leviticus chapter 5. If a person who is a witness sworn to testify sins by refusing to tell what he has seen or heard about a matter, he must bear the consequences. If a person touches something unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean wild animal, a domestic animal, or a reptile, he's guilty, even though he may not be aware that he's unclean. If he touches some human uncleanness, no matter what the source of his uncleanness is, and he's unaware of it, then, then, when he learns of it, he is guilty. Okay. If someone allows to slip from his mouth an oath to do evil or to do good, and he doesn't remember that he clearly spoke this oath, then no matter what it was about, when he learns of it, he's guilty. A person guilty of any of these things is to confess 
in a manner he sinned, in the manner he sinned, and bring his guilt offering to Adonai for the sin he committed. It is to be a female from the flock, either a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering, and the priest will make atonement for him in regard to his sin. If he can't afford a lamb, he is to bring his guilt offering for the sin he committed to doves, or two young pigeons for Adonai. The one is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering, and he is to bring them to the priest, who will offer the one for the sin offering first. He is to wring its neck, but not to remove his head. Sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar. Drain out the rest of the blood at the base altar. It's a sin offering. He is to prepare the second as a burnt offering in the manner prescribed. Thus the priest will make atonement for him in regard to the sin which he committed, and he'll be forgiven. But if his means are insufficient, even for two doves or two young pigeons, then he's to bring as his offering for the sin he committed two quarts of fine flour for a sin offering. He is to bring it to the priest. The priest is to take a handful of it as a reminder portion. Make it go up and smoke on the altar on top of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. It's a sin offering. Thus the Kohen will make atonement for him in regard to the sin he committed concerning any of these things and he'll be forgiven. The rest will belong to the priests as with a grain offering. Now Adonai said to Moses, if anyone acts improperly, and inadvertently sins in regard to the holy things of Adonai, he is to bring as his guilt offering for Adonai a ram without defect from the flock or its equivalent in silver shekels, using the sanctuary shekel as the standard, according to your appraisal of its value. It's a guilt offering. In addition, he is to make restitution for whatever he did wrong in regard to the holy thing. Moreover, he is to add to it that one-fifth, and give it to the priest. Then the priest will make atonement with the ram of the guilt offering, and he will be forgiven. If someone sins by doing something against any of the mitzvot, the commands, of Adonai concerning things which should not be done, he's guilty, even if he's unaware of it, and he bears the consequences for his wrongdoing. He must bring a ram without defect from the flock, or its equivalent according to your appraisal, to the priest for a guilt offering. The Kohen will make atonement concerning the error which he committed, and even though he was unaware of it, he will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He is certainly guilty before Adonai. And Adonai said to Moses, if someone sins and acts perversely against Adonai by dealing falsely with his neighbor in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him by stealing from him or by extorting him, or by dealing falsely in regard to a lost object he has found, or by swearing to a lie. If a person commits any of these sins, then if he sinned and is guilty, he is to restore whatever it was he stole or obtained by extortion, or whatever was deposited with him, or the lost object to which he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely. He is to restore it in full, plus an additional one-fifth. He must return it to the person who owns it on the day when he presents his guilt offering. He is to bring as his guilt offering to Adonai a ram without defect from the flock or its equivalent according to your appraisal to the priest. It is a guilt offering. Thus, the priest will make atonement for him before Adonai and he will be forgiven in regard to whatever it was 
he did that made him guilty. Verses um, 1 through 13 of chapter 5 deal with a specific type of sin that is generally called the sin of omission. Things we should have done, but we didn't. And if we're to understand the rest of the Old Testament, then we need to grasp and remember that there are various classes and categories and levels of sin. We've already been introduced to the concept of intentional versus unintentional sin as the first major fork in the road. That is, if the sin is unintentional, it's not high-handed, then one or more of the many sacrificial rituals of the Levitical sacrificial system can atone for this sin. But, if the sin is what is classified as intentional, there's no remedy. The sinner must be executed. So far we have looked at the unintentional class of sins, and Leviticus 4 introduced us to a subdivision of unintentional sins called inadvertent. An action, it was an error. It was just an accident. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, now show us another subdivision of the unintentional type of sin called sins of omission. Now the idea is that something was called for by the law, but it wasn't done. And it occurred... Because somebody honestly forgot, or they weren't paying attention, or for some reason, maybe they were incapable of doing it. Um, illness, an accident happened. Something like that. And we're given examples of what sorts of things this class of sin, unintentional omission, encompasses. And the first example we're given is of someone who hears of a um, public proclamation that anybody knowing the facts of some kind of an incident that needs to be adjudicated, needs to come forward, but they don't do it. That person is guilty of the sin of omission. This is not a person who was involved in whatever this incident was. They just might know something that could shed light on the whole matter. Now, what is interesting to me is that the biblical, or at least the Hebrew, definition of the words inadvertent and omission doesn't quite fit my definition. Okay, It would seem to me that a person who refuses to come forward to give information is doing so both intentionally and actively. Okay? But in the mind of God, this is indeed one example of a type of sin that he defines as a sin of omission. And further, the Lord says this person is guilty, meaning a punishment is rightfully due to him. But he can avoid that punishment by means of a proper sacrifice. Now, the ancient Hebrew commentators 
noticed this problem and they came to the conclusion that since the person who refused to come forward only had information and had otherwise committed no crime, that when that what that person did was to be somewhat negligent in his duty. He neglected to do his civic obligation. Now, it's not uncommon in the church world for a person to notice wrongdoing. They see somebody pilfer a hymnal. <laughs> or maybe they enter an area of the premises where they don't belong. And then they don't say anything about it. Okay. Usually the rationale is they want to be merciful or they don't want to be a tattletale or they don't want to get somebody in trouble. Well, the Lord says, think again. When you do that, you've just incurred guilt in his eyes. It's your duty to report whatever information you have about a wrongdoing all right, to the proper authority. The next example of an unintentional sin is what happens when anyone comes into contact with any unclean thing. Right? Unclean meaning impure. And in verse 2, we are given three categories of unclean things. All right? A dead rodent here, you see, is an unclean thing. And these three categories are listed as the carcass of a wild animal, the carcass of a domesticated animal, and the carcass of a reptile or a snake or any kind of animal that creeps along the ground. But it also says that the person who becomes unclean by touching one of these things that are listed was unaware of it. Okay, But later, he became aware of it. And therefore, he's been running around in this state of impurity without knowing it, without realizing it. So the idea here is that a person has become unclean, but then went some amount of time without realizing, realizing his impure state, and that made him guilty. So the act of becoming unclean and not doing anything about it, that was the sin. Now, how can somebody come in contact with an impure animal and not know it? Well, it could be as simple as you're walking along and you step on a tiny little frog. You're unaware of it. But when you get back to your tent, you're sitting around, your wife looks and says, Oh, you, there's a dead frog stuck on the bottom of your shoe. Get it out of here. But more often, that had to do with eating cattle or sheep that under normal circumstances were perfectly acceptable for food. They were ritually clean. But for some reason, this time it wasn't ritually clean. For instance, since almost all meat was part of the sacrifice, perhaps it turned out the sacrifice was defective in some way. Maybe the priest was unclean that day. Okay. And you didn't find out about all this until you, after you ate the meat. Okay. Or perhaps someone gave you some meat and you ate it, and then it turned out that that animal from whence it came had been killed by a wild beast. 
That made it unclean. A third example is when a person touches what the Bible calls human impurity. For instance, a man touches his wife after she gives birth, but the allotted time has not passed, and she's yet to perform her required purification ceremony. This is because immediately upon giving birth, a woman is considered to be in an unclean state. All right? Or a woman, maybe a, a man has, has um, intercourse with his wife and she's just starting her cycle. And women during their cycles were considered unclean. And so the, now the man has accidentally become unclean, but he didn't notice and he only found out later. I mean, all these types of uncleanness are of a lesser severity as opposed to one of the most severe kinds of impurity. Touching a human corpse. Notice that impurity from touching a dead body isn't even included in what we've been reading here because stringent purification rituals have to be performed in that case. Now, I hope that you're starting to see this important developing principle that guilt in God's eyes is not a matter of your being aware of your guilt. It's a matter of either not doing something that you should have done or doing something that you should not have done all in accordance with God's laws and commands. To carry that theme a little further, the fact that someone is unaware that by nature he was born a sinner, something that really isn't our fault, doesn't change the reality that to God, that person and all of us are guilty. In other words, a person who has never heard the gospel is in the same basic condition as somebody who has heard it but rejects it. Okay? Both bear guilt because awareness or unawareness of your guilt really has no bearing on the matter. And that same principle that was in effect in the Old Testament that we're reading about remains in effect today. Okay? The fourth example given in verse 4, is when a person gives an oath, they make a vow, a promise to do something. Whether that vow is for good or for evil. Right? And then time passes and that person forgets about it. He just doesn't remember even that he's made this vow. Well, it says he's guilty before God of an inadvertent sin of omission. Now, this is kind of interesting, particularly the part about whether the oath is to do something evil or do something good. Okay. See, first the idea here is that the person has sworn in the name of God to do something. That's a vow. It's a vow. Because by definition, this person has invoked Jehovah's name. Second, it really doesn't matter what the nature of the promise was. It could have been that you impulsively promised revenge. Even to kill your spouse for making you angry. Perhaps you didn't really mean it, you just said it rashly. But not following through makes that person who made the vow guilty of the sin of omission. By the way, we get a good example of this in the, in the Hebrew text with uh, Jephthah. 
right, who made a vow when he came home from winning a battle that he would sacrifice the first thing that walked through his door. He expected it to be one of the sheep greeting him. It was his daughter. Now the point, of course, is not that one's to carry out a vow even if it's an evil thing. Okay? Later in the Old Testament, and again in the New, we get warnings against making vows to God altogether. Just don't do it. I mean, we're, we're, we're told, make our yes, yes, and our no, no. Invoking God's name carries serious consequences, and we're better off to just not do it. Okay? I mean, we tend to invoke God's name awfully casually and carelessly. Right? And the more we do it, the more it just kind of becomes an unconscious habit. Right? And the far more likely we are to just forget about whatever it was we ever vowed to him in the first place. Now, in the ancient days, vows and oaths and such were a lot more serious matters than they are in our day because there were, there were fewer written legal codes and therefore fewer lawyers right, and written contracts. Vows and oaths were the traditional method of making legal contracts. In, in Western society, written promises or vows called contracts is the norm for us. And part of the basis of our legal system is that an illegal contract is not binding on us. What that means is, for example, you sign a contract, in Bible terms you make a vow, with another man for him to steal a car for you and to sell it to you for a real cheap price. And you give him half the money upon his agreeing to do the dirty deed and the rest when he turns that stolen car over to you. But instead he just takes your money and never shows up with the car. And modern Western law, you can't now take that guy to court demanding your down payment be returned. Okay? Because the nature of the subject of the contract itself is an illegal act. And a contract concerning an illegal act is not binding in our law system. But here in Leviticus, we see that making a promise of any kind in the name of Jehovah, whether the nature of the promise is to do something against God's law or in accordance with God's law, is binding as a vow as far as he's concerned. Obviously, to vow to do something against God's law, such as promising to murder somebody or steal from them, carries a double whammy with it. Now, the bottom line is that you and I might impulsively and insincerely make a vow, invoking God's name and then just blow it off and forget about it, change our minds because we suddenly realize it was a pretty bad thing. God doesn't forget about it. It makes us guilty in his eyes when we don't fulfill a vow made in his name. So let's follow that biblical advice and avoid making vows in the first place unless they're the utmost serious and necessary Verse 5 presents us with this um, very overlooked aspect of the sacrificial system, confession. And it's kind of common for Christians to think and kind of accuse the ancient Jews um, of mechanical legalism for their following of the sacrificial system. In fact, the first step of seeking forgiveness for sins in the sacrificial system 
is confession to God that you have sinned against Him. Did you know that? We will find passages all throughout the Old Testament that makes it clear that one must have a repentant and contrite heart, mind, in order for the animal sacrifices to be efficacious. Certainly we're going to read again and again in the Bible of those hypocrites who will go through all the rituals, but who are proud and inwardly unrepentant. But you know what? We have exactly that same thing happen in modern Christianity. We have many professed believers go through the outward motions, but the trust and condition of the heart are completely lacking. For each of these first four cases of inadvertent sins of omission listed in Leviticus 5, the prescribed sacrifice is called out in verse 6. And it's the hataat sacrifice that consists of a female sheep or a goat. Now, we're not going to review about all that. You can refer to the last couple of lessons if you want to know more about it. Now, from verses 7 through 13, we get this list of what animals may be substituted when the worshiper simply doesn't have the financial means to bring the prescribed animal, a female sheep or a goat, for his atat offering. For instance, if he can't provide a lamb for a for his atat offering, then two pigeons or two doves will sacrifice. Uh, will, will suffice rather for the sacrifice. As cheap and plentiful as birds were, if that person was utterly destitute and couldn't even afford that, then he could also bring two quarts of semolina, fine flour as it's usually translated instead. Also notice that the usual requirement when you offer up grain on the altar um, is that you have to add oil and frankincense, which was a very expensive luxury item. Well, that's waived. You don't do that. So what we see here is this sort of sliding scale set up not only according to the class of society, that the person belongs to, that is, high priest, whole congregation, leader, tribal leader, or individual. But even how much that individual person is able to reasonably afford. Now remember, this formula only concerns this particular sacrifice, the hata'at. But also notice, under no circumstances does even the poorest person get by with no sacrificial offering. At the least, some semolina is required. And again, we see this all-important God principle being set up. No one is exempt from paying a ransom for his sin to the Lord. With the advent of Christ, the sliding scale ended. Christ was the fixed and unchangeable price for everybody, rich or poor. Now, let me mention something here that is quite interesting and I'm not sure I have an answer for it that I'd take to the bank anyway. A foundational biblical principle is that only blood can atone for sin. Yet here we see that the absolute poorest person can, in this case, provide grain, plant life, and not animal life in order to expiate his guilt. 
Now, the only reason I can come up with for this anomaly is that what is really being dealt with is impurity. Okay? The sin comes from not... In, 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 uh, in what we're dealing with here, with the Hata'at offering, the purification offering, the sin comes from not realizing one's accidental impurity. It's not that one's sin has made one impure. I've said on a number of occasions that the typical Christian doctrine that God doesn't grade sins on a curve is simply not borne out by the scriptures. Here is one of the finer examples. Inadvertent sins of omission whereby even grain can be used to pay for the guilt. I mean, this is the absolute lowest category of something that can even be loosely called sin. And obviously God makes some kind of special allowance for it. Now, this section also gives me an opportunity to show you how we are to understand the concept of taking the Bible literally. Now, as I've taught you before, literal means that we're to seek out what the words or phrases actually mean. Right? As opposed to trying for direct word-for-word transliteration. Which can often produce a sentence that we can't even understand. Okay? In addition, the meaning of a phrase must be taken in its cultural sense in the context of the era it was written. It should not be allegorized. It shouldn't be taken as a metaphor unless the context indicates that that's what the phrase is meant to be, a metaphor. Verse 7, depending on your version, starts out like this. If he can't afford a lamb, others might say, but if his means do not suffice, or something like that. Now the Hebrew words being translated here are im'ain yado meseget. Okay. Translated directly, word for word, it doesn't mean any of those things that I just told you. It means if his hand cannot reach. If his hand cannot reach. Now what does that mean to you? Okay. They make a lot of sense to our ears. You see... That phrase, if his hand cannot reach, is a fossilized Hebrew idiom, which simply means, in modern Western English, if a person can't afford it. Okay. So, here we have a good literal translation. But it's not a word-for-word transliteration. Or all but the most versed Bible scholars in ancient Hebrew would be absolutely lost trying to understand what it meant. Now, verse 14 takes us to a new type of sacrificial offering, the asham. Because we're going to be introduced to a new class now of sins. New class of sacrifice for a new class of sins. And here we are presented with the concept of paying a penalty for an act of misbehavior. Now, this is totally different 
than what has gone on in the first 13 verses of chapter 5 of Leviticus, whereby a person hasn't necessarily misbehaved. Rather, he accidentally contracted an impurity, and when he didn't realize that he was impure, that made him guilty. Okay? But a better word than penalty here is reparation. You pay a reparation because you did something wrong. Okay. A reparation indicates something is owed because of something you did. Okay. When we get a speeding ticket and pay a fine, that's a penalty in its more pure sense. It's not that we're paying necessarily something that's owed. It's that we've made a legal error. We've been fined. And now as a punishment, we pay that fine. After we pay that traffic fine, we're not forgiven or excused. Paying the fine doesn't make up. It doesn't substitute for our having broken the law. And as we know in Florida, getting a traffic ticket and paying for it certainly doesn't end the process. We're assessed these horrible things called points, which can affect our insurance rates. Now, a reparation, in the sense meant here, in Leviticus 5, in fact, does bring restoration and forgiveness. It's not about punishment. Okay? And because one has transgressed against God's holiness, the Asham sacrifice pays reparations for the person who was the transgressor in order that he indeed has this required debt owed to God paid in full and therefore has a restored relationship to God. So we're going to call the Asham offering the reparation offering. You with me? I'm going to translate it as the reparation offering. Now it might seem that these different types of sacrifices that we've discussed so far, the Ola, the Mecha, the Zeva, the Hata'at, and now the Asham, are really only different from each other in minor ways. That we're kind of slicing this onion awfully thin as we attempt to draw distinctions among them. Yet my hope is that after we've been introduced to each of these, and then a little later in Leviticus as we see them applied, we're going to begin to develop a fuller sense that I think was intended. And it is that sin and forgiveness are complex and multifaceted. It's anything but simple. Now, one way to think of all that we've learned so far about the sacrificial system is that it gives us a set of tools and examples that describes not only what sin is in God's eyes, but its effects and, and, and what can be done about those terrible effects? Now, Gordon Wenham describes these tools and examples of models in Leviticus. Or rather, these tools and, and, and examples in Leviticus as models. So, using his term of models of something, the Ola, the burnt offering, gives us a model which is very personal in nature. That is, we see a human being who's being declared guilty by Yehovah for his nature, his sin nature. Then we have to see an animal die in his place as a substitute 
in order that communication and peace between God and that particular man could occur. The zepha, the peace offering that most translators label as sin offering, incorrectly in my view, uses medical terms, actually, right, to look at yet another aspect of sin. I, if you remember back, I used the example of a person being poisoned. Sin makes the world so polluted, just as poison so pollutes a human's organs and our tissues, that God can't dwell there anymore. Therefore, the blood of an innocent animal becomes the antidote. It counteracts the effects of that poison. Or the blood disinfects the polluted sanctuary. Right? After which Jehovah can once again be with his people. The Asham, the reparation offering, gives us yet another view of sin by giving us kind of what I call a commercial model. Okay? And as we will see as we study the Asham, what happens is sin creates a debt. A debt owed to God. Okay? The debt is paid. Reparation is made by means of the blood of that innocent animal. Now, I took you off on that little bit of a tangent because we've all heard so many priests and preachers and teachers present their takes on sin and the effect of sin on men. And usually each denomination will choose within their overall doctrine one or two aspects of sin as their effective choice, if you would, and declare that the other effects of sin that we read about in the Bible are somehow not valid or they're of lesser importance or they're not worthy of discussion. What we see in Leviticus is that God is attempting to teach we earthbound creatures some of the most basic aspects of sin and its awful consequences. And the way he seems to be accomplishing this in Leviticus is by breaking it down into bite-sized chunks so we can digest it. These bite-sized physical chunks are the various kinds of sacrifices, classes of sacrifices, and the rituals, and their very specific purposes that, that each of them have. Okay. After all, when we address sin in reality, what are we dealing with but a spiritual matter? And in our current physical conditions, we are simply unable to comprehend very much about that spiritual universe. Unsaved people are unable to comprehend even less than we are. So exactly what was the Asham for? As we move through the Torah, we're going to find that many of the laws and commands and rituals specified in Leviticus are further fleshed out. They're expanded on. They're given a lot more detail in numbers. And then if you're coming to Sunday Torah, as you're seeing in Deuteronomy, the Asham is no different. So for now, we're going to cover primarily what we find in Leviticus. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 5, the first case of the kind of sin that the Asham sacrifice is meant to atone for is described as those sins that are against the Lord. Or even more specifically, inadvertent sins against the Lord's sacred property. Now, that's an interesting category. 
A great deal of commentary has been written by Jewish rabbis and ancient Hebrew sages on exactly what constituted inadvertent sin and just as equally what exactly constitutes the Lord's sacred property. Okay. Now, I hope you will soon gain a very sympathetic outlook on the usually honest attempt by these ancient Jewish religious authorities to try and define what are often just very generalized commands and rituals that we find in the Torah. Because these commentaries are what forms the basis of the Talmud. And we shouldn't be too quick to judge those writers as self-important or as men who tried to actually alter God's commands. Their purpose generally, but not always, was quite noble. It was meant to try to find ways to understand and carry out his commands. Many of which were very hazy in their biblical explanations, just as we encounter here in Leviticus 5. Now, some of the possibilities these learned men included in the category of inadvertent sins against the Lord's property are eating holy food. We find reference to that in Leviticus 22.14, down the road, which is generally defined as a non-priest eating food that should have been eaten only by the priests. Or, priests eating food in their personal homes that had been given as a sacrifice, which only should have been consumed in the tabernacle area. Another was failing to fulfill some types of vows, or failing to present the prescribed tithe at the sanctuary for some type of dedication ceremony. Even then, Leviticus 5 seems to break that down into two different types. Inadvertently sinning against the Lord and being aware of it, and inadvertently sinning against the Lord and not being aware of it until some time later. Pretty complicated. Sin is complicated. Now, what is important to grasp is that these particular sins or trespasses are of a more serious level because they are considered to be directly against the Lord. All sins, of course, are in some way against the Lord because every sin by definition involves going against God's commands or laws or his will in some fashion or another. Now, in our Bibles, in Leviticus 5.14, we find the English word sin or trespass. The Hebrew word that's being translated is ma'al. Ma'al is one of several Hebrew words in the Bible that wind up being all lumped together and then translated into the English as sin or trespass. But ma'al is used in Hebrew to denote primarily the most serious sins. And then later in the Torah, we're going to find the same Hebrew word all used to describe the sin of adultery and the all the sin of worshiping other gods idolatry very serious we're going to find a certain king of judah committing a all because he wanted to personally burn incense on the incense altar to honor the god of israel even though this privilege was allowed only by priests 
In fact, we find that depending on whether the sin against the Lord was known immediately or not until later, it even brought about slightly different rituals to atone. Sinning against the Lord's sacred property and being aware of it at the time is what's being addressed in verses 14 through 16. Sinning against the Lord's sacred property and not being aware of it is discussed starting in verse 17. The worshiper... If the worshiper was aware of his transgression, at the time it occurred, he was to bring a male sheep, a ram, which had to be at least one year old as his sacrificial offering. This was to be a perfect ram. Not all sacrifices, by the way, required the animal to be perfect. This one, for this particular sacrifice, had to be of the absolute highest quality. As a further definition of the sacrificial reparation, we get this very vague and often disputed instruction that the sacrifice is supposed to equal some monetary value as measured by the temple standard for silver shekels. Now, let me untangle that just a little bit because this monetary system was still in use in Jesus' day. And this will help you picture some of the Bible stories which took place in New Testament times. First, a shekel is a somewhat fixed monetary unit. More correctly, it's actually a weight. It's not really just a coin. Now it's a coin. Just like a dollar is a fixed unit. But in ancient times, just how much of a particular precious metal was contained in a shekel coin varied. Shekels could could have been made of copper, of bronze, of silver, and further, the person who minted the coins could have been a king, could have been a wealthy man, could have been the temple authorities. You could mint your own shekels. Imagine that. All of these different kinds of shekels were floating around at the same time, so there was a fairly severe disparity between the value of the various shekels depending on who minted them and what kind of metal it consisted of. Early in Israelite history, it was determined that when money was to be used for religious purposes, the standard to be used was the weights and measured as used by the temple authorities. By Jesus' day, actually well before, a system was set up whereby money changers, heard this term before, Money changers would exchange shekels minted by an aristocrat or a king for shekels minted by the temple. They'd come up with how many years do you get for some of mine? Naturally, these money changers also charged a commission for this service and often cheated the people who had no other choice than to use these officially licensed money changers who required, who were required, by the way, to give a portion of their profits to the high priest. That's what the whole deal was about, with Jesus overturning the money changers' tables in the temple grounds. Okay? And it all becomes simply a commercial foreign money exchange operation. Part of the reason that a monetary value of the ram that was to be used in the fat sacrifice had to be set in the first place 
was that in the Asham offering for sinning against the Lord and being aware of it, there was this additional amount that had to be added. This fifth, this 20% had to be added to it. How do you give a ram plus 20% of a ram? Well, the idea was that that 20% extra would be given in money, in shekels. So the ram was assigned, a whole ram was assigned a monetary value. Let's say 100 silver shekels, all right, according to the temple standard. And then the worshiper was required to either give the temple that ram or 100 silver shekels plus another 20 silver shekels. That's how it was accomplished. So in my example, this was how he would accomplish his Asham offering. Now eventually it became possible to just simply give the temple the whole monetary value of the ram. Once they were so spread out, all right, all dispersed, bringing rams from long distance to the temple didn't make any sense. So it turned out in the end to be primarily just a, a money operation. Now, verse 16 ends with the words, these important words, and he shall be forgiven. I'm going to say this over and over again with these sacrifices. The worshiper was a completely absolved from this sin by God if he confessed his sin, if he came forward with a contrite and repentant heart, and he produced the required reparation offering. The sacrificial system was not defective. It did exactly what it was designed to do. But there were some things it couldn't do because it was never designed to do them. And we'll get into that next week. <laughs>